Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. I'm super excited to be recording this right now because it's just an extraordinary time in global markets. It doesn't feel like that necessarily in Australia. It's all kind of bumbling along as usual. Uh, but US markets finished 2023 with just an absolute bang and the S&P 500 has now passed 5,000 points for the first time, record highs all over the place. The market in the US, believe it or not, has doubled since its COVID lows. That is definitely not what's happened here. Uh, so many investors with international holdings are feeling pretty good. We've been talking about diversifying globally for a long time. And if you if you took that advice and you thought about that, you're probably feeling pretty good about your portfolio. But when you look even a teeny bit below the surface, there's some quite extraordinary things going on. So the question we have, is it all rosy or is it really only about the US? Is the US the only shining light at the moment? And is it only five things in the US? There's so much to talk about. Today, I'm joined by Mary Manning from Alfinity, who is the portfolio of the global man- the global equities portfolio there. She's an absolute superstar. She's worked with Howard Marks and George Soros. She's been on this podcast before. She talked about India long before anyone was talking about it. And I hope you took that advice too. She's in a lot of different markets. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Gemma. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's such a thrill always to talk about you. You have such an extraordinary perspective on things. But right now it feels like there's only one thing to talk about, which is the conversation we had just before we started. It was the Magnificent Seven a little while ago. Now we're back to, is it Mag 4, Mag 5? It's perhaps even smaller. Can you talk us through those stocks, what they are, why they matter so much, what they've been doing, just to give a bit of context for anyone who's not been perhaps paying super close attention. Absolutely. The Magnificent Seven, as you highlight, are the big seven stocks in the US, which last year, particularly in the first half of 2023, were the seven stocks that drove the market. So those seven stocks were up and what we sometimes refer to as the 493, which are the other uh, non-MEG7 that are in the S&P 500, those stocks didn't do very well at all. So the MEG7s are Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, Amazon, Tesla, Meta, and Google. Uh, but you are very right in, correct in saying that the MEG7 thus far this year has definitely become the MEG6. So of those seven, which all traded as a group for large parts of 2023, Tesla has already dropped out of the group on two fronts. Number one, it's massively out, underperformed in uh, FY24. So um, Tesla is down 22% this year and Nvidia, which is one of the best performing uh, magnificent stocks is up 45%. So just year to date, you have a 67% divergence in those two stock price performance. The other thing about the MAG7 is that they were literally the top seven stocks in, in S&P 500 and they were the top seven stocks in the MSCI World Index. Tesla has now um, fallen out the bottom of that and depending on the day, um, Broadcom and sometimes Eli Lilly is actually a bigger weight. So we're down to the MAG6. Now within that, um, you know, the Magnificent Four, which are the, the four largest of, of those companies I mentioned, or some, they're sometimes called the Fantastic Four. There are some that are doing better than others. But I think the point here is that markets last year and, and year to date have become very, very concentrated. And our view is always that we pick stocks that are in process for Alfinity. So that means stocks that are getting earnings upgrades. 
But while 2023 was about owning those stocks as a group, 2024 is about good stock picking within that group. They're not all going to continue to go up. And Tesla is the first one to sort of drop off the back of the bandwagon. So stock picking within that group is very, very important going forward. Yeah, that is super interesting. You made a comment just before we came on, and it's something that you and I have talked about in the past. Yeah, the real challenge with the ASX for investors, particularly fund managers, less so if you're an individual because you're not quite so worried about what the benchmark more broadly is doing. But if you don't hold those top two stocks in the case of Australia, if you don't own BHP and CBA, you've kind of missed out on what, 15% of the market, like something ridiculous. And so the performance of those two things will drive the performance of your portfolio. Are we talking about that now too in the US and you've mentioned Misky World as well? Yes and no. On the yes side, uh, Apple and Microsoft are both around, you know, four to five percent each. So certainly if you don't own those, you will, and they do very well as they did last year, you will notice that in your performance. And so uh, that's why, you know, it is a, a source of alpha generation potentially. If you can stock pick within those stocks and not own the ones that are going to underperform and then have, have outsized positions in the ones that do perform, that's a very big source of alpha generation. But historically in global markets, they were much more diversified. So even 10 years ago, you had, you know, the biggest weights were, were 2% or 2.5% at the max. And now to have these two companies, which combined are getting close to 10%, that is a concentration level that's closer to the Aussie market. I, the no part, uh, to answer your question though, is that I did some analysis across markets and across sectors. And actually, concentration is more common than not. So what I did is I looked at the top seven stocks in each sector. And everybody talks about technology and the impact that Magnificent Seven have had on the IT sector and communication services, which is where Meta and, and Google sit, and also on consumer, which is where Amazon and Tesla sit. But even outside that, you're seeing big companies get bigger and you're seeing large market caps uh, get even bigger and continue to win. So examples would be Exxon within the energy uh, JP Morgan within uh, financials and some of the healthcare stocks, um, you know, certainly Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk, which are mega cap companies now as they've run up on these GLP-1 drugs. So even within sectors that have nothing to do really with technology, you're seeing this concentration. Then I also looked at different markets. So, um, you know, Switzerland is probably the best example. You have Nestle, which is basically <laughs> itself is like 50% of, of the market. You have countries like Taiwan, where TSMC is, is absolutely dominant weight in the market. So our view is that in 2024, you will see a broadening out of the rally, not just the, the Meg 7 that you saw last year, um, but that it's not like those Meg 7 need to absolutely go massively down in, in terms of their weight because concentration around the world is a thematic and a market force that's been going on for some time now. And it's not going to completely reverse such that, say, the you know Russell 2000 or a very small cap index will go to mean reversion and those big stocks will just stop being that big. Yeah, that's really, it's really interesting. <laughs> we beat ourselves up in Australia for having this concentrated market. Makes me feel a bit better hearing about Switzerland. It's just not, you know, it's not a teeny tiny country, right? They've got a bit going on. So a fair amount of the excitement for the MAG7, and you've pointed out that the companies in there, you know, Tesla is not exactly an identical consumer stock to Amazon. You know, they're quite different companies. They do quite different things for different people, but they've all come to dominate in their areas. So much of it has been about AI though, right? And this is such a hot topic. 
the technology has been around for decades, but it's obviously evolving at an extraordinary pace now. And I think consumers for the first time got a feel for what it could be like with ChatGPT. If you'd never sort of handled it, it, it felt a bit uh, amorphous, let's say. Your thoughts about AI, is it all just hype or is it really going to drive the kind of value that markets are starting to price in? An excellent question, Gemma. It's you know more than the million dollar question, more like a trillion dollar question in terms of people trying to figure it out. I have a few comments. The first is um, back to your original question about the Magnificent Seven. There is a view out there that it was just some sort of technical rally and it became self-enforcing with, with passive funds, et cetera. But actually there are some very, very fundamental reasons why those stocks went up in 2023. And um, the first one is that almost all of them uh, went into an earnings upgrade cycle at the beginning of 2023. And some of the, the major stocks like Google and Microsoft, they had been in a deep earnings downgrade cycle for most of 2022. So even if AI hadn't come along and you hadn't had ChatGPT burst onto the scene uh, in November of, of 2022, there's a strong case to be made that those stocks would have done very well anyways. The second point is sort of what I was mentioning before in terms of these are mega cap stocks and they have very, very strong moats around their business. And as they get bigger, it's easier for them to take market share and it sort of feeds on itself. The third point is of the Meg 7, many of those stocks, after years and years of just spending willy nilly on the cost side, they actually found religion in terms of managing costs. So Meta and Amazon, Microsoft and Google are all in that camp. So again, there was a turnaround for those stocks even without AI. And then lastly, these stocks all have very, very strong balance sheets, like fortress balance sheets where they generate tens of billions of dollars of free cash flow a year. And this was an environment where interest rates went up 500 basis points from the bottom. So to have those sort of fortress balance sheets and to be able to manage earnings through buybacks and, and returns to shareholders was very, very strong. So I think it's important to highlight that there were some very fundamental reasons outside of AI uh, that helped these companies sort of inflect at the beginning of 2023. However, AI, as you rightly point out, is a major driver of, of the thematic um, that influenced these stocks in 2023 and will continue to influence these stocks. So one of the ways I actually spoke at a, on a panel about AI last week, and there were a number of different panelists and we didn't have very much time. So the organizer told me you have to summarize all of your thoughts on AI into three slides, which is extraordinarily difficult to do because it's a, it's a complex topic. So what I did was I did a slide and I can certainly send it to you if you're interested, but it walked through what is the AI opportunity set and how does that change over time? Because I find it a really helpful way to think about everything that's happening in AI right now and that's gonna happen going forward. So the first opportunity set in AI is revenue opportunities that are happening right now or in the very near term. So Microsoft and NVIDIA would be great examples here. You can already see the impact of AI, whether it's through the Microsoft Copilot or whether it's through the demand for NVIDIA GPUs. You can already see AI working its way through their income statement and hitting the EPS line. The second set, which is going to happen you know, going forward, somewhere between the next 12 months to three to five years, uh, is AI revenue opportunities outside the tech sector. So these are companies that can use AI to boost their revenues. They're not selling AI products per se, like a GPU or a, a Microsoft Copilot, but they are going to use AI as a tool to enhance their revenues. So an example here might be Airbnb. They are working very hard on Gen AI tools so that the next time you know, Gemma, you guys want to go on a holiday, you just log into Airbnb and they know who you are. They know what all your preferences are. They know your past history of holidaying and it will generate like literally the, the generative part of Gen AI. It will generate the ideal holiday for you booking all Airbnbs wherever you want to travel. 
So that is a, a revenue opportunity which we are not seeing now and you can't see it in the numbers, but certainly it's it's on the, the cards. And then the third bucket, which is probably the furthest away, but arguably will be the most important, is AI that's used from a productivity perspective to reduce costs. So this, again, spans across all sectors. It's not just specific to tech. This will take years probably to come through and before we'll start to see it. Um, but it, it will be very powerful because AI can save a lot of time, improve a lot of productivity, and it can improve margins um, and EPS outcomes for companies. So that's sort of a, a high level way to, to think about AI if people are struggling with um, to sort of put a framework around it. The other way, which is, is maybe even easier, is to sort of follow the earnings. So, you know, in like Jerry Maguire, where there's that that big scene where they're saying, show me the money. That's kind of like my view for AI in, in 2024. Show me the money. I want to see AI in your earnings or in your revenues. We are past the, the stage where CEOs can just go on their quarterly conference calls and say AI 200 times and their, their stock will get a, a re-rating. You actually need to be able to see this in the earnings. So if you look at the stocks that we own in the Magnificent Seven, we own four of the Mag7 stocks, uh, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and NVIDIA. And those stocks are one where you can actually see the benefits of AI already in the earnings. That's so interesting. And I love your comments about just mentioning it in, in, your, uh, in your updates because I don't think any of us has been to a presentation in the last 12 months where there hasn't been liberal use of potential ways that AI may be utilized within an organization where anyone who's a little bit close to the customer or how the business operates or worse in operations has not seen any live impact of AI and uh, and wonders when it might be coming. It, uh, it's quite fascinating to be in that space. I'd love to talk about NVIDIA because it is, as you say, it's up 47%. I mean, the, the rise of that company has just been extraordinary. And I think for a lot of retail investors, certainly when I talk about the investors that we talk to regularly, it's been on their radar, but it's not its not a passion project like a Tesla was, uh, like Microsoft, which makes sense. It's not as tangible. It's a little bit more difficult to get your hands around and your head around if you're not in the tech space and you're not close to it. You hold it. Very helpful to know. What do you love about it? How do you feel about what has happened with it? Obviously, you must be feeling really good about what's happened with it. Do you think it's going to continue? Yeah, so NVIDIA is a stock that's um, covered by by my colleague, Trent Masters, and he's done a very, very good job of, of nailing down the thesis. I think one of the things that we really about, like about NVIDIA harkens back to what I was saying before about the moat. In terms of you know advanced GPUs, NVIDIA is so far ahead of its competitors. And um, that's part of the reason why when ChatGPT burst onto the scene and you've had all of this, this focus on AI and certainly compute power, which is sort of one of the first dominoes to fall over in the whole uh, demand um, cycle, uh, why NVIDIA is just perfectly placed because it has very strong mode around its business. And in terms of the actual uh, chips that it sells, there are not many options there um, in terms of, of competitors. There is AMD, but the quality of their products is, is significantly lagging to what uh, NVIDIA has. So, so that is one thing. And I think the second thing is that in terms of the visibility of demand, certainly last year, I believe it was first quarter last year where they had a very, very big earnings upgrade, but from an Alfinity perspective, that's obviously what we're looking for, stocks that are an earnings upgrade cycle. Um, the visibility on what that demand was going to be in the, the rest of 2023 and out to 2024 and now even 25 gives us comfort uh, in, in the long-term story. The second thing I'll, I'll highlight about NVIDIA is, you know, if you're thinking about it or if people are looking at NVIDIA, 
Make sure you're looking at valuation because it has gone up a lot, but their earnings have gone up absolutely massively. As a team, we, we sit back and we say in our entire collective careers, we have not seen a, a company get that big earnings upgrades in a short period of time. So NVIDIA's PE right now is actually lower than it was a year ago. So despite the fact that it's gone up a lot, um, that is a function of how much its earnings have gone up. So those two things, sort of the moats that, that are around the business, the, the medium term visibility on its earnings and on its revenue and demand for its core product. And then lastly, the fact that valuation is not stretched despite the rally. That's why we take comfort in, in holding NVIDIA at this time. That's so fascinating. Uh, that point about the PE and the extent to which it has fallen is fascinating. Um, there will be those who remember Tesla on a PE of 300 times and various other options. Yeah, so there have been a lot of companies, perhaps not all of uh, the sort of top end of tech, but plenty of them, you know, with nothing to write home about and then these extraordinary valuations. Uh, but to be able to see the uh, the real earnings to back it up is amazing. What are your thoughts for investors who feel like they've missed the run? It seems quite apparent for a lot of our investors that they're really reluctant to buy at current prices when you see the S&P 500 higher 14 out of 15 weeks. You don't want to buy into that. It makes people really cautious. What are your thoughts for those people? Do you think there are other places they should be looking? Do you think you really kind of need to have a bit of this anyway? I think the first point is that market timing is very difficult, even for obviously professional fund managers who, who have, like I have 25 years of experience, market timing is, is very difficult. So trying to bottom ticket at the bottom or certainly top ticket and say, I'm not buying any, that, that's very hard. So uh, at Alfinity, we have a quality overlay for everything that we're looking for. As I mentioned before, we're looking for stocks that are an earnings upgrade cycle, but we're also looking for high quality stocks that are a reasonable valuation. And so if you find stocks in any part of the market cycle that are high quality and that are reasonably valued, then you know over time those stocks should um, should perform well for you. So in terms of jumping in now, um, as we've discussed previously, buying the Meg Seven as, as a thematic is a is a backward looking thing. That was a 2023 driver. Um, but certainly within the Magnificent Seven, we own four of those, and we still think that those four still have significant upside, and that this earnings upgrade cycle is not just about AI, and it's going to continue for some time. One thing to highlight within the Meg 7 is the turnaround in cloud. So of the um, you know, Magnificent 7 and, and the larger ones within that group, um, you have Azure at Microsoft, you have AWS in Amazon, and you have Google Cloud within Google. And cloud is a really big driver for certainly two of those three, uh, for Microsoft and Amazon, and Google Cloud um, sort of a, less important, but also uh, a good driver of earnings. And cloud is in the very early stages of turning around. Part of that turnaround is driven by AI, but it's also a cyclical thing that, that has to do with where the U.S. economy is and where you know, budgets are for U.S. corporates and CTOs. And so that's a thematic that's bubbling on underneath that. The second thing is, you know, Tesla, you've seen, um, you know, EVs as a, as a thematic sort of fallout of bed, and there's a lot of concern around there. So stock picking within that group is very, very important. And if they're high quality and reasonably valued, and from our perspective, getting earnings upgrades, then we're, we're comfortable holding them. The second thing I'll say, though, is that, you know, there are stocks not sort of Russell 2000, small caps, you know, $2 billion market cap kind of things, but stocks that are not in the trillion dollar market cap club, but are just under that, 
that are, are really, really attractive right now. So some stocks that are, are in that category would be, say, Costco, which has a $320 billion market cap. Home Depot is another stock we like. It's you know $360 billion market cap. Um, you know, Bank of America at almost 300, Nova Nordisk at 500. Like these are not, you know, even a few years ago, these would have been considered mega cap companies. But now that you have a couple that are, you know, around three trillion, they're they're more like mid caps. <laughs> um, so we think that there's a lot of opportunities in those stocks. We are finding examples there that meet our criteria of earnings upgrades, high quality and reasonably valued. And so um, that that broadening out, not to you know thousands and thousands of stocks, but just to that sort of next level down is, is possibly going to happen in 2024. You're not just limited to the US when you are looking at markets, which is a wonderful thing. There was an incredible chart I saw the other day actually showing that the US particularly large caps, massively underperformed from 2001 to 2010, which is something that you very much lose sight of in the last sort of 15 years in particular. Do you have any thoughts on sort of pockets of opportunity outside, as you say, what used to be mega caps but are now a bit mid cap even in the U.S.? Yeah, so because we look at earnings leadership, we do look at earnings across the different markets. And thus far in the fourth quarter earnings season, U.S. companies have done better. So roughly 78% of companies have beat on, on EPS, whereas Europe has not been quite as strong. And then within Europe, you know, cyclicals have done um, not particularly well. And within other important subsectors within Europe, you've had a very big bifurcation between the have and have nots. So for example, from late last week, uh, you had Hermes do amazingly well, and you had stocks like Burberry, which is listed in the UK, do shockingly badly. So that that's not just uh, confined to the UK. You're seeing that across the board that there's there's have and have nots. So Europe, there are certain stocks that we really like in in Europe. I mentioned Nordisk uh, before, but it's not like there's a, a strong story of you know Europe is doing is doing better in the US, and that's somewhere where you should uh, allocate more capital. The other region, obviously outside Europe, would be emerging markets. And emerging markets, China uh, continues to do quite poorly, particularly in our process where you're looking for stocks with earnings upgrades. The big tech companies um, continue to get, with a few exceptions, to get earnings downgrade. And the impression is that some of that regulatory risk is still ongoing. And so the risk reward uh, is quite uh well, we don't have any direct exposure in China right now because that risk reward uh, isn't there. We do own one emerging market stock, which is technically listed in the US, so it's not in the, the EM benchmark, but it's Mercado Libre, which is a big e-commerce and fintech company in Brazil. That was one of the best performers in our portfolio last year. It was up uh, almost 90%, and we continue to really like that business. It's it's delivering across both of the business units, the e-commerce and the fintech. It's another sort of NVIDIA-esque in terms of the more it goes up, but the earnings are going up even more, so it's, it's sort of continuously getting a little bit cheaper on a PE perspective, and it does do an important job in the portfolio in terms of sort of diversifying that geography. So we generally try to run very um, geographically diverse portfolios, but you are seeing right now that uh, the earnings in the US have been a little bit better than other parts of the world. It's really interesting. I noted that that Hermes result as well. So there were comments that sort of top-end Chinese consumers were rolling over, that there was not going to be that sort of spend in luxury anymore. And then that result came out and you're like, okay, let's assume that that is specific to some stocks and not others or some companies and not others. Do you have thoughts about where the economy is in different 
sort of geographies and how much impact that is having. I mean, we've talked for a long time about how extraordinarily resilient the US has been. The US consumer seems to be holding up okay, better than other areas and so on. Is that driving any sort of market performance or is it almost not particularly well correlated anymore? I would say a few things. First of all, um, for the US and and Europe, uh, the the underlying thesis is that rates have peaked, and I think that that's not that's sort of a consensus view. The the debate now is how fast they're going to come down and when it's going to start, but that does have implications from a cyclical perspective. Generally, when rates start to to fall, um, you know there may be a shift into more cyclical sectors. So um, we have some cyclical exposure in our portfolio for sure. And then outside of the U.S. and Europe, that seem to be on a sort of similar um, interest rate cycle, although that may may diverge going forward. You have Japan, which is completely doing its own thing. You have China, which is just weak across the board, and the risk return uh, is not there. You have India. We've we've discussed India for many years. I know, um, which has been a very very uh, good performing market, but is now at a at a somewhat high PE. And then you have the rest of EM. So yes, I would say that there's quite um, you know divergent outlook between the different regions in the world. Right now, um, you know we have a lot of our portfolio is in U.S. multinationals. That's a majority of our portfolio. So yes, they are listed in the U.S., but they have exposure to what's going on and what different drivers are in many different regions around the world. That's really interesting. Uh, yes, and Mary said <laughs> to, actually to my husband what, 10 years ago, maybe not that long ago. Uh, that's where I put the money for my children. And we may or may not have given that quite a bit of thought and done something similar. And we appreciate that. <laughs> that oh, well, I hope very it worked out for you. <laughs> it's worked out very nicely. We, uh, we thought that was a very good one. Obviously always a small little allocation, these things, but no one was talking about India 10 years ago. It, uh, it was pretty cool. So for investors now, it is, it's a really interesting time and I do, I, I'm very hopeful that people listen to this conversation because we have a lot of investors who are very astute about what's going on in markets and very thoughtful about what's happening under the hood in all of their different portfolios. But others will sort of look more broadly at the overall return, particularly if they're holding a diversified portfolio that's sort of managed for them. They're not thinking about what's going on underneath. We had a bit of a conversation before we came on air about how how extraordinarily, as you say, divergent views are and, and outlooks are for different parts of the market, for different stocks, for different economies and so on, particularly different geographies. How would you suggest investors start thinking about this? If you've been a bit of a set and forget kind of person and you've been very happy just putting money into your super fund and hoping that the managers are allocating according to uh, perhaps something a bit more tactical than just what would have ordinarily happened in the past. How would you suggest people start thinking about the world we're currently in? This is a little, can I say that's a little bit different? Can't say that, can I? A few points. First of all, I would make sure that you have a diversified portfolio because that's something at Alfinity that we always look for. We have these charts in our our, our main slide pack and they have the uh, geographic distribution by listing, the geographic distribution by revenues, and then they have the sector distribution. And if we just sort of lean back, whenever we look at those charts, we want it to look like uh, you know a pie with lots and lots of different slices of pie. And so I think that's important, particularly in, in this environment, um, to be very, very overweight or sort of you know trying to shoot the lights out in one sector or one country. Uh, that introduces a lot of risk into your portfolio. And we find that diversification across those different metrics 
metrics that I measured um, is, is a core part of our, our portfolio construction perspective. The second thing is, I mean, obviously, listen to your podcast. <laughs> I listen to your podcast, and it's very helpful in terms of just understanding what's going on out there, because there are a lot, a lot of macro issues, there are a lot of market issues, and um, just having a, a daily understanding of, of what's going on uh, is, is very helpful. And then lastly, um, just having an investment philosophy that people um, are, are comfortable with. So at Alfinity, our investment philosophy is about stocks that are in earnings upgrades. So that's earnings momentum, stocks that are high quality and stocks that are reasonably valued. And that is, it's like a religion at Alfinity and we follow that um, as the lens through which we look at any stock. So some people may have a different um, philosophy. We obviously all believe strongly in ours, um, but just having that, that philosophy. So if uh, investors are looking at a new stock or looking at a new sector, there's a lens which, which they can analyze that. It might um, be helpful in terms of making sense of everything that's going on out there. I think that point about a lens is really important because we talk to a lot of different guests on this podcast, as you would know, and certainly a lot of Australian investors, you know, they've grown up with a deep value mentality. And if you have a deep value mentality, it's really hard to make sense of what's going on in markets at the moment because that's not what you're getting when you're buying the stuff that's performing dramatically, the stuff that's really outperforming at the moment. It's not at a deep discount to intrinsic value, that's for sure. Uh, But it's delivering and it has been for a while. That's kind of uh, kind of what's been happening. Mary, people will definitely want to follow up after this conversation. You've been kind enough to come on multiple times. Where do people go to keep up to date with you? Obviously, we will want to keep talking to you regularly, but uh, to keep up to date with Alfinity and what you guys are working on and where you are in the world. If you go to Alfinity's website, it's alfinity.com.au. You can look under our domestic funds and then the global funds, which is the part of the business that uh, I'm involved with. You can get all of the information or uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to hear from investors. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Jim. I always appreciate the chance to chat. It, uh, it's always such an absolute pleasure to have you, Mary Manning from Alfinity. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions. We love hearing about who you'd like to hear more from. Mary's always super popular. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth.com at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.